my guest in a few minutes. Um, but now we're going to go to insights from my guest. First, let me welcome to our program, he is standing by now, um, Paul Kingsnorth. And I believe that Paul is over in England somewhere. Where are you at, Paul? Uh, well, I'm in the Lake District, actually, Gary. I'm in, uh, I'm in Cumbria, where it's raining extremely hard. Paul, I'm going to do something that I do occasionally. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to read from Civilization, the Dark Mountain Manifesto, uh, before we have you address the positive solutions that you lay out, all right? Okay, great. Okay, because I, I think our audience needs to hear this. So please, audience, be patient on this. This is very important information. Those who witness extreme social collapse at first hand seldom describe any deep revelation about the truth of human existence. What they do mention, if asked, is that they're surprised at how easy it is to die. The pattern of ordinary life, in which so much stays the same from one day to the next, disguises the fragility of its fabric. How many of our activities are made possible by the impression of stability that pattern gives? So long as it repeats or varies steadily enough, we are able to plan for tomorrow as if all the things we rely on and don't think about too carefully will still be there. When the pattern is broken by civil war or natural disaster or the smaller scale tragedies that tear at its fabric, many of those activities become impossible or meaningless. While simply meeting needs we once took for granted may occupy much of our lives. What war correspondents and relief workers report is not only the fragility of the fabric, but the speed with which it can unravel. As we write this, no one can say with certainty where the unraveling of the financial and commercial fabric of our economies will end. Meanwhile, beyond the cities, unchecked industrial exploitation frays the material basis of life in many parts of the world and pulls at the ecological systems which sustain it. Precarious as this moment may be, however, an awareness of the fragility of what we call civilization is nothing new. Few men realize, wrote Joseph Conrad in 1896, that their life, the very essence of their character, their capabilities and their audacities are only the expression of their belief in the safety of their surroundings. Conrad's writings expose the civilization exported by European imperialists to the little be little more than a comforting illusion not only in the dark, unconquerable hearts of Africa, but in the whited areas of capital cities. The inhabitants of that civilization believe blindly in the irresistible force of its institutions and its morals, in the power of its police and of its, of its opinion. But their confidence could be maintained only by the seeming solidity of the crowd of like-minded believers surrounding them. Outside the walls, the wild remained as close to the surface as blood under the skin, though the city dweller was no longer equipped to face it directly. Bertram Russell caught this vein in Conrad's worldview, suggesting that the novelist, quote, thought of civilized or morally tolerable human life as a dangerous walk on a thin crust of barely cooled lava, which at any moment might break and let the unwary sink into fiery depths. 
What both Russell and Conrad were getting at was a simple fact which any historian could confirm. Human civilization is an intensely fragile construction. It is built on little more than belief, belief in the rightness of its values, belief in the strength of its systems of law and order, belief in its currency, above all, perhaps, belief in its future. Once that belief begins to crumble, the collapse of a civilization may become unstoppable. That that civilization's fall, sooner or later, is as much a law of history as gravity is a law of physics. What remains after the fall is a wild mixture of cultural debris, confused and angry people whose certainties have betrayed them, and those forces which were always there, deeper than the foundations of the city walls, the desire to survive, and the desire for meaning. It is, it seems, our civilization's turn to experience the inrush of the savage and the unseen, our turn to be brought up short by contact with untamed reality. There is a fall coming. We live in an age in which familiar restraints are being kicked away and foundations snatched from under us. After a quarter century of complacency in which we were invited to believe in bubbles that would never burst, prices that would never fall, the end of history, the crude repackaging of, of triumphantism of Conrad's Victorian twilight, hubris has been introduced to Nemesis. Now a familiar human story is being played out. It is the story of an empire corroding from within. It is the story of a people who believed for a long time that their actions did not have consequences. It is the story of how that people will cope with the crumbling of their own myth. It is our story. This time, the crumbling empire is the unassailable global economy and the brave new world of consumer democracy being forged worldwide in its name. Upon the indestructibility of this edifice, we will have pinned the hopes of this latest phase of our civilization. Now, its failure and fallibility exposed, the world's elites are scrambling frantically to buoy up an economic machine which for decades they told us needed little restraint, for restraint would be its undoing. Unaccounted sums of money are being funneled upwards in order to prevent an uncontrolled explosion. The machine is stuttering and the engineers are in panic. They are wondering if perhaps they do not understand it as well as they imagined. They are wondering whether they are controlling it at all or whether perhaps it is controlling them. Increasingly, people are restless. The engineers group themselves into competing teams, with neither side seeming to know what to do, and neither seems much different from the other. Around the world, discontent can be heard. The extremists are grinding their knives moving in as the machines coughing and stuttering expose the inadequacy of the political oligarchy, who claim to have everything in hand. Old gods are rearing their heads, and old answers, revolution, war, ethnic strife, Politics as we have known it is it totters, like the machine it was built to sustain. In its place could easily arise something more elemental, with a dark heart. As the financial wizards lose their powers of levitation, as the politicians and economists struggle to conjure new explanation, it starts to dawn on us that behind the curtain at the heart of the Emerald City sits not the benign and omnipotent invisible hand we had been promised, but something entirely else something responsible for what Mark's writing not so long ago before Conrad cast as the everlasting uncertainty and anguish of the bourgeois epic, 
a time in which all that is solid melts into air, all that is holy is profaned. Draw back the curtain, follow the tireless motion of cogs and wheels back to its source, and you will find the engine driving our civilization, the myth of progress. The myth of progress is to us what the myth of God-giving warrior prowess was to the Romans, or the myth of eternal salvation was to the conquistadors. Without it, our efforts cannot be sustained. On to the root stock of Western Christianity, the Enlightenment at its most optimistic grafted a vision of an earthly paradise towards which human effort, guided by calculative reason, could take us. Following this guidance, each generation will live a better life than the life of those that went before it. History becomes an escalator, and the only way is up. On the top floor is human perfection. It is important that it should remain just out of reach in order to sustain the sensation of motion. Recent history, however, has given this mechanism something of a battering. The past century too often threatened a descent into hell rather than the promised heaven on earth. Even within the prosperous and liberal societies of the West, progress in many ways failed to deliver the goods. Today, the generation, today's generations are demonstrably less content and consequently less optimistic than those that went before. They work longer hours with less security and less chance of leaving behind the social background into which they were born. They fear crime, social breakdown, overdevelopment, environmental collapse. They do not believe that the future will be better than the past. Individually, they are less constrained by class and convention than their parents or grandparents, but more constrained by law, surveillance, state pros prosecution, and personal debt. Their physical health is better, their mental health more fragile. Nobody knows what is coming. Nobody wants to look. Most significantly, in conclusion, there is an underlying darkness at the root of everything we have built. Outside the cities, beyond the blurring edges of our civilization, at the mercy of the machine, but not under its control, lies something that neither Marx nor Codrad, Caesar nor Hume, Thatcher nor Lenin ever really understood. Something that Western civilization, which has set the terms of global civilization, was never capable of understanding, because it understood it would be its undermine, fatally, the myth of that civilization, something upon which that thin crust of lava is balanced, which feeds the machine and all people who run it, in which they have all trained themselves not to see. End quote. Back in a moment with my guest to talk about what that dark side is and what positive solutions we have. The Dark Mountain Project, curated by Paul Kingsnorth and Douglas Hine. Paul's the author of One No, Many Yeses and Real England. He is deputy editor of The Ecologist uh, between 1999-2001, and he is also a poet. Paul, uh, first of all, thank you for that um, extended introduction. Uh, now will you take us to this idea that we are not living a sustainable life, and even those people in the so-called sustainable movement frequently are not aware of how their choices each day and their mindset continue to perpetuate this. Could you take us now where I left off through what it means in the uncivilization edict, uh, what the problems are, what the solutions are? Well, thanks very much, Gary, uh, and thanks for that. Um, thanks for that reading for the manifesto. Um, it, 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 it helps to focus my mind almost a, a year or so, a year and a half or so since I since I wrote that. Um, the Dark Mountain Project is. Um, 
is really a movement of people who, as you'll have gathered, gathered from the, the manifestos, have, have stopped believing in the stories that our civilization tells itself. Um, and specifically, um, one of the things that we're concerned about, it's quite a multifaceted movement and it takes in writers and artists and poets and, and practical people, scientists and farmers and engineers, all kinds of people really, but, but one of the key things that we're concerned about is that we in the West, in the, in the privileged, um, rich world, um, are not really coming to terms with the reality of what we're doing to the natural world. Now, we think we are, but we're not. Um, now, I've been involved in environmentalism and uh, work around sustainability and green issues and things for, for 15 years or so. And obviously, these movements are very broad. They take in lots of different kinds of people with lots of different ideas. But nevertheless, I think we can agree that over the last five or ten years, um, and I think this is true in the States just as it's true here in Europe, um, there has been, uh, we've seen created a very mainstream green sustainability movement, which um, we had, which has taken in our politicians, which has taken in our, our corporate leaders, and a lot of our mainstream environmentalists from the big green groups, um, and a lot of our business leaders and all the rest of it. And we hear these people talking every day about the need for our civilization in the West to become sustainable and to become green. Um, and I, I'm sure at least some of them believe in what they're saying. Um, it's pretty obvious to everybody now, after many decades of denial, that what we're doing to the earth is entirely unsustainable in the literal sense of that word. Um, we're going to start running out of fossil fuels fairly soon. Um, we're destroying the forests, we're eroding the soil, the coral reefs are dying, the glaciers are melting. We know what the stories are. Um, we know that the human population is expanding. We know that the, uh, the logic of consumer capitalism is driving us to a state where we will consume and create and, and destroy more and more all the time. And we know that we're bringing more and more people into that system. And so the question that we've started to ask ourselves in this kind of mainstream green narrative at the moment is how can we make this civilization of ours sustainable? And what that seems to come down to is how can we replace, for example, our polluting energy sources like oil and coal with nice clean ones like wind and solar power? Or how can we uh, replace our uh, gas-driven cars with electric cars? Or how can we uh, buy food that's a little bit more locally sourced? How can we stop using so much plastic and all the rest of it? And um, while these things are sometimes good things in themselves, they're not necessarily bad things, they're entirely beside the point. Because what we're doing is we're not asking how can we protect life on this planet. We're not asking how should we live in order to do that. We're asking how can we keep the lifestyles to which we have become accustomed whilst not doing very much damage if possible? So we start from the basis that we live this very high-end, high-consumption, materialist lifestyle with our cars and our big houses and our, all of our material goods and our laptops and our clothes that we replace regularly and all the rest of it and our exotic foods, all of which is you know, pretty wonderful stuff to a lot of people and certainly which we're addicted to, I think, in the literal sense of the word. And we say, well, okay, well, we, obviously we want to keep having these things. How can we keep having them without destroying the planet? And what we're not prepared to face is the possibility, which I think is uh, much more than a possibility. Actually, I think it's the reality that we can't have all of these things without destroying the planet. Because at the moment, there are maybe two or three billion people living like us, like you guys live in America, like we live in Europe. Um, and we're already pushing the planet to the brink. We're changing the climate of the planet, which is something that has not happened in the whole of human history. We're destroying the forest at an epic rate. We're emptying the oceans of life. We're, we're straining the ground. We know what we're doing. 
And that's only two or three billion of us. Now, there, there, are, there are six or seven billion on the planet. There will soon be nine billion. Um, and the logic of, of our economics and our politics and our culture suggests that all of those people will want to be like us. And it's very hard for us in the rich world to say to those people, you can't have what we've got. That's hardly fair. But, of course, if they did live like us, um, that would pretty much be the end of everything. And it wouldn't matter how much more efficient our economy's got. It wouldn't matter how much more efficient our... Um, our ecological technologies or whatever God, this lifestyle is not sustainable in the literal sense. And my feeling is that all of us, even those of us who consider ourselves to be campaigners and environmentalists and all the rest of it, we have lost sight of that reality because we have lost sight of where we actually are on the planet and our real connection to the natural world. And what we talk about in the manifesto, um, just following on from the part that you read out there, is this idea of, of what we call the myth of nature. And this is one of these deep-seated cultural myths. It's very much like the myth of progress, which you, you talked about there, the idea that everything will always get better for us because that's the way it's been for the last few generations materially, and so that's the way we think it will be forever. And we have to believe that. And the myth of nature tells us that we can divide the world into, into almost two separate categories. One of them is nature, and the other one is humanity. And we're somehow separate from this, this big thing called nature out there. We can control it, we can manipulate it, we can manage it, we can destroy it, or we can bring it back again. But in any case, we're not really part of it, we're a separate thing. And depending on your, depending on your views, I suppose, you could trace this right back to the beginnings of Christianity or some other religions as well, but you can certainly look at it um, as part of our Enlightenment legacy here in the West, this idea that we are the triumphant species and that we have this the right and the ability to control nature. And, and one of the things that we're saying is, look, there's no such thing as nature in that context. What there is is a world. We're all part of it. Um, and we're, we're very simply living in a system which is parasitical upon the rest of it. And, you know, we used to know that. We still do know that deep down. But we've come to convince ourselves that that's not the case, that somehow, somehow we can work it all out if we can just get the technology right, if we can get enough wind farms up in time, if we can get... President Obama or, or the British Prime Minister or the head of the UN or anyone else to come to the right agreements on the international stage quickly enough, then somehow we can turn it all around. Uh, and the Dark Mountain Project is is something that arose from just a small group of people here in, in Britain and has actually spread quite rapidly around the world in the last uh, few years. We've got quite a lot of adherence and a lot of interest in the States now. It's really simply a group of people who've stopped believing in these stories. Um, we've stopped believing in the, in the narrative of progress. We don't believe in the, this, this myth of nature. We don't believe that humanity is central and has the right or the ability to do everything it wants. And as, you'll have, as your, your listeners will have heard from the manifesto, um, we don't believe that um, this century is going to be an easy one. We think that our civilization is on the skids, and we think it's going down, and we think we need to face that with a kind of um, uh, an acceptance. We think that the logic of, of the machine that we're living in is taking us towards a brick wall. It's probably too late to stop that. I mean, climate change, for example, is, 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 a, good, is a good way of looking at this. The environmental movement now, certainly in Britain, um, and I'm sure elsewhere, is almost entirely focused on stopping climate change. Um, it's almost given up on uh, many of its other goals or put them on the back burner. It seems pretty obvious to me, and it seems pretty obvious to us, that we're not going to stop climate change. We don't have the time to do it. Um, we're not going to turn around this economy. We're not going to turn around the kind of individual human desires that are at the basis of it. Because in order to do that, we would have to reject most of the way that we live here in the West. And we're not prepared to do it. Most people are not prepared to do it. Even most environmentalists are not prepared to do it. 
So we need to get real about that. And we need to sit down and we need to look reality in the eye. And we need to say, this is the future that we face. We have created a bubble, uh, this bubble that we call civilization. Um, we've created it over the last two or 300 years. It's built on fossil fuels. It's built on the, the stripping of the Earth's resources. And in the case of us, us in the West, it's also built on the imperial exploitation of a lot of other people whose land we have taken and, and exploited for, for its various material benefits. Um, and that's coming to an end now. And the planet itself is showing signs of rebellion. Um, the systems that we've set up are, are, are demonstrably crumbling. We can see that. We can see the way the economy is falling apart. We can see the fact that our politics just is not set up to be able to respond to this. We can see the fact that most people are so hooked on this material way of life that they just don't want to consider that they may have to end it. And one of the first things that we ask people to do in the Dark Mountain Project is just simply look that reality in the eye and say, look, it's kind of game over for this way of life. For those of you all over the world, Paul Kingsnorth is my guest. I quoted earlier from Paul's work on a very important Dark Mountain manifesto. By the way, I only quoted about one-fifth of it. There's a great deal more, and you should read all of it. Um, and now Paul's telling us why. If you listen to my radio show last night, I told my audience, and Paul, I think you might appreciate this, I let it rip. I mean, I had my Howard Beale moment uh, from Network. I told them I didn't want them listening, to any, listening any longer to me on the radio if they weren't willing to actually do something, get off their dead butts, and actually self-actualize a sustainable life. Just being entertained or amused or educated is meaningless if they're not actualizing it. And people can say, oh, I'm a good person or I care, but unless you're actually doing something on a daily basis, you're not. You're a hypocrite. And I see hypocrites. I, I think Al Gore's a, a hypocrite. Uh, he's in it for fame and money. I think uh, Obama is getting the Nobel Prize in peace is, is just absurd. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm looking around, and I don't see... I don't see sustainability in the environmental movement. I don't see it in the health movement. I find a lot of unhealthy people in the health movement. I find a lot of lacking in spirituality people in the spiritual movement. I found the Deepak Chopras, the spiritual materialists, appalling. And everywhere you look, it's all about how can we commercialize this moment and sustain the success of it, sustain the money flow, making foundations that are endlessly there just to create money. This morning is one example. It's 20 years we've been doing this walk for the cure and this great come and join us for the 20th year and I'm thinking well if you've been having a walk and raising money for 20 years <laughs> if you don't have a cure get out of the way yeah, and let's let other ideas prevail but it's more about making a sustainable lively a sustainable image a sustainable reputation but not actually changing anything your thoughts please well I, I'm absolutely I mean uh, the point I'm, I'm making I guess about the mainstream green movement or certainly the mainstream sustainability movement it's, it's become a business it's been sucked into the core purpose of our civilization which now is making money I mean I don't think that we can deny that um, certainly over here and I'm sure this is even more the case in the States um, almost every institution of our lives of our, of our state of our society is, is, is focused on on business and wealth creation um, everything from our schools to our universities to our hospitals um, is now becoming almost an engine of, 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 of business and wealth creation and we find environmentalists and and, and sort of sustainability gurus talking the same language uh, uh, and this feeds into the problem I was talking about before which is that um, uh, that we're not actually prepared to change we just want to talk about change 
the, the harsh reality of this is that in order to live a sustainable life, uh, in order to live kind of decently upon the earth, we have to live with a lot less material input than we are living with at the moment. And the problem that we have there is that we in the West have been brought up on this idea of progress, which tells us that we need to have more stuff, that we need to be materially more uh, comfortable, by which we mean surrounding ourselves with more consumer goods, having to do less physical work. Um, uh, we can be kind of isolated individuals in our suburban houses, stocking up on stuff from the stores and, and, and from online shopping, and having more and more sophisticated and smaller machines every year. And, and that, in a, in a crude nutshell, is, is the way that we see um, the way that we measure progress. So the problem that the sustainability or the green movement has had is that it's, if it's honest with itself, it has to tell people like us in a consumer society who take this stuff for granted, it has to tell them, look, you can't have this stuff anymore, or at least you can't have a lot of it because you don't really need it and it's hugely damaging. And a lot of people take that as a threat, a massive threat to their, their idea of progress and a good life. And so a lot of mainstream Greens, including people like Al Gore, have tried to square this circle by saying, well, hey, look, if we can just get some new technologies online, then you guys don't have to change your lifestyles at all because we can somehow make it all sustainable with, with machines, which is what we like doing in the West. Whenever anything goes wrong, we invent a machine to solve the problem. Um, but we're not going to solve the problem that way. And the, and the reality, I think, is, you know, in terms of looking at what you do in your own life to make these things a reality... The conclusion I've come to after sort of 15 years of environmental campaigning and doing a lot of the stuff that I'm now criticizing is that a lot of the stuff we're doing is futile. Um, I don't think it's worth going on marches to try and stop climate change, for example, to be quite honest. I don't think it's worth marching through the capital city of your country to try and call on your government to do something which it is physically unable to do. I think it's a waste of time. I don't think it's worth you writing to your legislators because your political parties like ours are largely representatives of business. I don't think it's worth taking part in a lot of the campaigns that big NGOs run. Uh, that doesn't mean all of them. Some of them are very valuable. I think that specific campaigns to protect, say, specific forests and all the rest of it are, are very useful. But the big general campaigns about creating a sustainable economy, I think, are, are hot air. And I think that, as with so much else, um, this stuff starts at home. It, the way you live starts at home. I mean, I always, I always think of Gandhi as a good example of this. Um, Gandhi is a man who manages to bring down the British Empire or at least get the British Empire out of his country, um, by actually demonstrating his ability and his willingness to make a lot of sacrifices and to live differently to the people that he's attacking. Now, if Gandhi had been a guy who lived in a very large house and had expensive clothes and drove around in, in, in large cars, I don't think he would have had the following that he had. Now, I'm not suggesting we should be Gandhi or pretend to be Gandhi, but what I'm saying is that the first place that we start if we want to start talking about sustainability or greenness or any of this stuff is in our own lives. My guest is Paul Kingsnorth. We're going to go to Paul now. Paul, I'm going to um, begin our segment with a briefer quote from your work uh, that I began in the quote of the first part uh, in the earlier program today, the section entitled The Severed Hand. All right. And then we'll right. come over to you Thank you, Doug. the remaining of our, our conversation. The myth of progress is founded on the myth of nature. The first tells us that we are destined for greatness. The second tells us that greatness is cost-free. Each is intimately bound up with the other. Both tell us that we are apart from the world, that we began grunting in the 
primeval, primeval swamps as a humble part of something called nature, which we have now triumphantly subdued. The very fact that we have a word for nature is evidence that we do not regard ourselves as part of it. Indeed, our separation from it is a myth integral to the triumph of our civilization. We are, we tell ourselves, the only species ever to have attacked nature and won, and this our unique glory is contained. Outside the citadels of self-congratulation, lone voices have cried out against this infantile version of the human story for centuries, but it is only in the last few decades that it is that its inaccuracy has become laughably apparent. We are the first generation to grow up surrounded by evidence that our attempt to separate ourselves from nature has been a grim failure, proof not only of our genius but our hubris. The attempt to sever the hand from the body has endangered the progress we hold so dear, and it has endangered much of nature too. The resulting upheaval underlies the crisis we now face. We imagined ourselves isolated from the source of our existence. The fallout from this Imaginative air is all around us. A quarter of the world's mammals are threatened with ex- imminent extinction. An acre and a half of rainforest is felled every second. Seventy-five percent of the world's fish stocks are on the verge of collapse. Humanity consumes 25 percent more of the world's natural products than the Earth can replace, a figure predicted to rise to 80 percent by mid-century. Even through the deadening lens of statistics, we can glimpse the violence in which our myths have driven us. And over it all looms runaway climate change. Climate change which threatens to render all human subjects irrelevant, which presents us with detailed evidence of our lack of understanding of the world we inhabit, while at the same time demonstrating that we are still entirely reliant upon it. Climate change which highlights in painful color the head-on crash between civilization and nature, which makes plain more effectively and efficiently than any carefully constructed argument or optimistically defined protest how the machines need for permanent growth or require us to destroy ourselves in its name. Climate change, which brings home at, our, at last our ultimate powerlessness. These are the facts, or some of them, yet facts never tell the whole story. No, they do not. We hear daily about the impacts of our activities on the environment. Like nature, this is an expression which distances itself from the reaction and reality of our situation. Daily we hear, too, of many solutions to these problems, solutions which usually involve the necessity of urgent political argument and agreement and a judicious application of human technological genius. Things may be changing, runs the narrative, but there is nothing we cannot deal with here, folks. We perhaps need to move faster, more urgently. Certainly we need to accelerate the pace of research and development. We accept that we must become more sustainable, but everything will be fine. There will still be growth. There will still be progress. These things will continue because they have to continue, so they cannot do anything but continue. There's nothing to see here. Everything will be fine. Will it? We do not believe that everything will be fine. We do not believe that because we cannot be sure, based on current definitions of progress and improvement, that we want it to be. Of all humanity's delusions of difference, of its separation from and superiority to the living world which surrounds it, one distinction holds up better than most. We may well be the first species capable of effectively eliminating life on Earth. This is a hypothesis we seem intent on putting to the test. 
We are already responsible for denuding the world of much of its richness, magnificence, beauty, color, and magic, and we show no sign of slowing down. For a very long time, we imagined that nature was something that happened elsewhere. The damage we did to it might be regrettable, but needed to be weighed against the benefits here and now. And in the worst-case scenario, there would always be some kind of plan B. Perhaps we would make for the moon, where there could be survival in the lunar colonies under giant bubbles as we planned our expansion across the galaxy. But there is no plan B, and the bubble, it turns out, is where we have been living all the while. The bubble is that delusion of isolation under which we have labored for so long. The bubble has cut us off from the life on the only planet we have or ever likely to have. The bubble is civilization. Consider the structures on which that bubble have been built. Its foundations are geological, coal, oil, gas, millions upon millions of years of ancient sunlight dragged from the depths of the planet and burned with abandon. On this base, the structure stands. Move upwards and you pass through a jumble of supporting horrors, battered chicken sheds, industrial arbiters, burning forests, beam-trawled ocean floors, dynamited reefs, hollowed-out mountains, wasted soil. Finally, on top of all these unseen layers, you reach the well-tended surface where you and I stand, unaware or uninterested in what goes on beneath us, demanding that the authorities keep us in the manner to which we have been accustomed occasionally feeling twinges of guilt that lead us to buy organic chickens or locally produced lettuces, yet for the most part glutted, but not sated, on the fruits of the horrors on which our lifestyles depend. And finally, we are the first generation born into a new and unprecedented age, the age of echocide. To name it thus is not to presume the outcome, but simply to describe the process which is underway. The ground, the seed, the air, the elemental backdrops to our existence, all these are economics and have taken for granted our participation. To be used as a bottomless tip, endlessly able to dilute and disperse the tailings of our extraction, production, and consumption. The sheer scale of the sky or the weight of the swollen river makes it hard to imagine that creatures as flimsy as you and I could do that much damage. Philip Larkin gave voice to this attitude and creeping worrying end of it in his poem, Going, Going. Things are tougher than we are, just, as earth will always respond, however we mess it about. Chuck filth into the sea, if you must, the tides will clean beyond, but what do I know, doubt. Nearly forty years on from Larkin's words, doubt is what all of us seem to feel all the time. Too much filth has been chucked into the sea and into the soil and into the atmosphere to make anyone feel sensible. The doubt and the facts have paved the way for a worldwide movement of environmental politics, which aimed, at least in its early raw form, to challenge the myths of development and progress head-on. But time has not been kind to the Greens. Today, environmentalists are more likely to be found at corporate conferences hemming the virtues of sustainability and ethical consumption than doing anything as naive as questioning the intrinsic values of civilization. Capitalism has absorbed the Greens as it absorbs so many challenges to its ascendancy. A radical challenge to the human machine has been transformed into yet another opportunity for shopping. Denial is a hot word, heavy with connotations. When it is used to brand the remaining rump of climate change skeptics, 
They object noisily to the association with those who would rewrite the history of the Holocaust. Yet the focus on this dwindling group may serve as a distraction from a far greater form of denial in its psychoanalytical sense. Freud wrote of the inability of people to hear things which did not fit with the way they saw themselves in the world. We put ourselves through all kinds of inner contortions rather than look plainly at those things which challenge our fundamental understanding of the world. And finally, today, humanity is up to its neck in denial about what it has built, what it has become, what it is in for. Ecological and economic collapse unfold before us, and if we acknowledge them at all, we act as if it were a temporary problem, a technical glitch. Centuries of hubris blocks our ears like wax plugs. We cannot hear the message which reality is screaming at us. For all our doubts and discontents, we are still wired to an idea of history in which the future will be an upgrade version of the present. The assumption remains that things must continue in their current direction. The sense of crisis only smudges the meaning of what must no longer a natural inevitability. It becomes an urgent necessity. We must find a way to go on having supermarkets and superhighways. We cannot contemplate the alternative. And so we find ourselves, all of us together, poised trembling on the edge of a change so massive that we have no way of gauging it. None of us knows where to look, but all of us know not to look down. Secretly, we all think we are doomed. Even the politicians think this, even the environmentalists. Some of us deal with it by going shopping. Some deal with it by hoping it is true. Some give it the despair notion. Some work frantically to try and fend off the coming storm. Our question is, what would happen if we looked down? Would it be a machine which, for decades, they told us needed little restraint? For restraint would be its undoing. Unaccountable sums of money are being funneled upwards in order to prevent an uncontrolled explosion. The machine is stuttering and the engines are in panic. They are wondering if perhaps they did not understand it as well as they imagined. They are wondering whether they are controlling it or it is controlling them. End of quote. And that was from my guest who is now sending by, Paul Kingsnorth. Paul? Now let's go to the reality of what we were talking about earlier, and I'm turning the forum over to you. I would like for you to begin, please, by letting us understand from your perspective the myths that we hold of modern civilization, the myths of our political system, the myths of our more um, Western civilization that have been exported around the world via globalization. Critique, if you would, for us, please, the myths of the primary initiative that led to the Dark Mountain Project. Well, thanks, Gary. Um, yes, uh, as, as, as we said in the manifesto, and um, some of which you've um, eloquently reported on there, um, what, what, we're, what, we're, what we primarily are at the Dark Mountain Project is a, a collection of people, originally a small group of writers, but, but we've expanded quite rapidly to take in artists and musicians and, and practical people as well, farmers and scientists and engineers and all sorts. Um, who have stopped believing in the myths that Western civilization um, has underpinning it. Um, now, one of those myths um, you were just talking about there, the idea of progress, the constant, um, the, the idea of a sort of constant progression in, in one direction. Um, and this is not something that's borne out by history at all, but underpinning our society is, is this idea of, of material progress, whereby we imagine that one generation um, will always be better off materially, 
than the one before it, and we also imagine that, that we have a right for that to be the case. So we believe, for example, that every generation will be richer and happier uh, and will probably have a larger and warmer house and a better car and a, a, a more sophisticated machines, better communications technology, better healthcare, and all the rest of it. Now, um, to some degree, that's been true for the past um, few generations in, in Western countries. So it's a powerful myth, and in some cases it's underpinned by facts. But if you look at it globally in terms of the ways in which most people are living their lives, and if you look at it in historical terms, you can see that actually there is no such thing as a constant progressive kind of ladder in which everything gets better all the time. History moves in fits and starts. And civilizations rise and fall, and whether they fall depends largely on how, they, um, how, uh, how well they're structured internally, but also how they relate to their, their, the, the natural world around them and how, how, how they exploit that and how stable they are as a society. So we like to believe that everything will always get better, and that's one reason that we can't face up to uh, a number of the things that you were talking about in your introduction there, the actual realities of what we're doing to the planet and how that is now kicking back into our, our comfortable lifestyles. We can't face that because we are inculcated with this belief that everything will always get better. And if we see any evidence that it won't, we simply say to ourselves, well, um, something will turn up. We'll probably invent some machines to clean that up. Technology is getting better all the time. The scientists and the politicians will work it out. It's not worth worrying about. And that's something you hear a lot, um, a lot in, in the society that we live in. Another of the myths that we're taking aim at in the Dark Mountain Project is this, this myth of human centrality, if you like, which you also touched on there, um, which is this idea that um, humans are the most important thing on Earth, that the Earth exists for human benefit, that because we have the power to take a lot of what we want, that we should be able to do it. Um, and that whatever we want to do as a species for ourselves, um, we should be able to do. And if it has negative effects on the rest of the planet or on other species and on, on the non-human world, well, that's just tough luck because it's basically all ours. Uh, and that's another myth that I think you could probably trace back to, to certain sort of monotheistic religions, but certainly also to the scientific enlightenment project, the idea that because we are able to take certain things, we should be able to do them and that, that really the purpose of the planet almost is uh, the, the glorification of humanity and, 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 and humanity's progress. And I suppose the final myth which is connected to that second myth is this idea of the separation of human beings from this thing called nature. Um, and as we say in the manifesto, the very fact that we have a word for nature is evidence that we regard ourselves as separate from it. We really do seem to see um, or at least those of us in the West, in, in some cases, seem to see the planet as a whole as divided up into human beings and everything else. And everything else we call nature, we think that we have conquered it, or at the very least we have, we have managed it reasonably well. Uh, we think at the moment that there are certainly some problems, including climate change and other things, but we'll probably be able to get over them if we act fast and quick enough. And it's all built on this assumption that we can separate ourselves out from other things, and that um, somehow that can be sustained in our, our civilization. Um, and we need to, when I'm, when I'm saying all this, what we do need to be aware of all the time is what I say and what you say, or rather what we mean when we use this word we, because we keep talking about we, um, we this and we that, and this is what we believe. And, and the we in question here is actually still a minority of, of human beings on Earth. It's those of us in the, in the rich world, it's those of us in the industrialized world, it's those of us who are living in, I suppose, imperial cultures at the moment. Um, we've got the kind of high-end lifestyles that we've got by 
both by living off the backs of, a, of, of an empire that involves us exploiting poorer countries and poorer people for their resources, but also an empire that involves us exploiting the, the, the non-human world, the, the natural world, if you like, um, as well. So we're kind of the beneficiaries of an empire, uh, and it's a small minority of us still. It's probably two or three billion people in the world who live like we do. And we're already pushing many natural systems to the edge of their ability to cope with that. So the idea that we could keep going in the same direction, however much more efficient our technology gets and however many solar panels and wind farms we put up and instead of uh, oil wells and coal mines, I think is a fantasy. I don't see any evidence for it. And the fact that we continue to believe it, even those of us who say that we're environmentalists and people interested in sustainability, is because we are still basing our worldview on these, these redundant mythologies. I appreciate that insight. Now, let's follow up in two ways. One, I've let my audience know for some time, for at least the last 20 years, I do not believe in our political system. I believe it's inherently corrupt. I've seen the Democrats uh, led under Bill Clinton corrupt. They, they deforested. They opened up our natural parks for exploitation. Al Gore was a part of that, refused to sign the Kyoto Agreement. I've seen them cause NAFTA and GATT, the World Trade Organization, to take away what now amounts to about 2.7 million jobs in the United States and open up uh, exploitation by Wall Street with getting rid of the one law, the Glass-Steagall Act, to protect us. I've seen the Republicans do the same. I see no benefit to having either a Republican or Democrat uh, in office at all. I do not see that. I think we need a whole new third party of real progressives, people who understand what we're discussing and are willing to put the brake on this growth machine, knowing that it's not sustainable and it's not even right, and looking at a different model. That said, I would like your thoughts upon people who simply turn to their political leaders and assume that what their political leaders tells us is what is going to happen because, after all, they're the ones who are making the law, and these political leaders never, ever, ever invite in progressive-minded people to share their points of view. So I would like your thought on that, and then follow that with this. Uh, have you ever heard of Charlie Reese? Uh, I'm not sure I have, no. Okay, well, as of today, he uh, he's from the Orlando Sentinel. He's a columnist. He's retired. But he wrote something today I found was really important. It was called 545 People. And it's short, but it's I think it, it ties right into what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Quote, politicians are the only people in the world who create problems and then campaign against them. Have you ever wondered if both Democrats and Republicans are against de- deficit? Why do they have deficits? Have you ever wondered if all the politicians are against inflation and high taxes? Why do we have inflation and high taxes? You and I don't propose a federal budget. The president does. You and I don't have the constitutional authority to vote on appropriations. The House of Representatives does. You and I don't write the tax codes. Congress does. You and I don't set fiscal policy. Congress does. You and I don't control monetary policy. The Federal Reserve Bank does. 100 senators, 435 congressmen, one president, nine Supreme Court justices equals 545 human beings out of 300-plus million are directly, legally, morally, and individually responsible for the domestic problems that plague this country. 
I excluded the members of the Federal Reserve Board because that problem was created by the Congress. In 1913, Congress delegated its constitutional duty to provide a sound currency to a federally chartered but private central bank. I excluded all the special interests and lobbyists for a sound reason. They have no legal authority. They have no ability to coerce a senator and congressman or president to do one cotton-picking thing. I don't care if they offer a politician $1 million in cash. The politician has the power to accept or reject it. No matter what the lobbyist promises, it is the legislator's responsibility to determine how he votes. Those 545 human beings spent much of their energy convincing you that what they did is not their fault. They cooperate in this common con regardless of party. What separates a politician from the normal human being is an excessive amount of gall. No normal human being would have the gall of a, of a speaker who stood up and criticized the president for creating deficit. The president can only propose a budget. He cannot force the Congress to accept it. The Constitution, which is the supreme law of the land, gives sole responsibility to the House of Representatives for originating and approving appropriations and taxes. Who is the Speaker of the House? Nancy Pelosi. She is the leader of the majority party. She and fellow House members, not the President, can approve any budget they want. If the President vetoes it, they can pass it over his veto if they agree to. It seems inconceivable to me that a nation of 300 million people cannot replace 545 people who stand convicted by present facts of incompetence and irresponsibility. I cannot think of a single domestic problem that is not traceable directly to these 545 people. When you fully grasp the plain truth that 545 people exercise the power of the federal government, then it must follow that what exists is what they want to exist. If the tax code is unfair, it's because they want it unfair. If the budget is in the red, it's because they want it in the red. If the Army and Marines are in Iraq, it's because they want them in Iraq. If they do not receive Social Security but are on an elite retirement plan not available to the people, it's because they want it that way. There's no insoluble government problems. Do not let these 545 people shift the blame to bureaucrats whom they hire and whose job they can abolish, to lobbyists whose gifts and advice they can reject, to regulators to whom they give the power to regulate and from whom they can take this power. Above all, do not let them con you into believing that there exist disembodied mystical forces like the economy, inflation, and politics that prevent them from doing what they take an oath to do. Those four, 545 people, and they alone are responsible. They and they alone have the power. They and they alone should be held accountable by the people for their bosses, provided the voters have the gumption to manage their own employees. We should vote all of these out of office and clean up the mess. Unquote. Your thoughts, please. Well, <laughs> that kind of says it all. Um, I think what you've got over there in the United States is, is an oligarchy uh, and not a democracy. Um, and it's pretty much the direction that we're going in over here in Britain as well. Um, I think that, you know, as humans, we're tribal animals and people tend to cleave to the tribe that they think is on their side. And, and this explains to me why people still have faith in, for example, the Democratic Party over there or maybe the Labour Party over here, which have both gone in exactly the same direction. Um, quite significantly to the right um, because people have to have something to believe in uh, and, and they used to have loyalty to these parties and sometimes they have family loyalty to them and they have a sort of romantic tradition and they, they long to believe. I mean we, you know, we saw all this with the election of Obama. It was fascinating to watch it. There was a huge wave of hope that Obama was elected on and you know, I'm sure he must have disappointed most of the people who voted for him or certainly a lot of the young and radical ones. Um, but 
I, I think to some degree you have to, or I certainly believe anyway, that you have to take a realistic look at what a political party is for. Um, and a political party exists to operate the existing system. Very rarely does a political party come into power through democratic means that wants to make any radical change to the system. And in a system like your system over there in the States, and increasingly our system here in Britain and in Europe, the people who run the show are the corporations. I mean, these guys bought up the Republic of you know, the United States a long time ago. President Lincoln was warning about it after the, after the Civil War. Um, and, you know, we've had the same thing here. What we've got here and what you've got there and what most countries in the world have got. I wrote about this in my first book, One No Many Yeses, ten years ago. I spent time all around the world and I went to Mexico and South Africa and Indonesia and, and all sorts of places. And in every single place, the story was the same. The progressives or the people on the left or people or radicals or whatever you want to call them, in every case they'd been disappointed by the parties that they considered to represent them. And in every single case, those parties have gone over to representing the interests of capital and of corporations. Um, and interestingly, when I was in South Africa, it wasn't too long after um, apartheid had ended, and I, I, I went to speak to a representative of the ANC government. Um, this is when Nelson Mandela was still in power, and the ANC had come in on a wave of hope, just like Barack Obama, and they disappointed a huge number of people, and they'd scrapped the radical economic plan that they'd drawn up, and they'd instead accepted one that had been drawn up by the World Bank, and they'd started um, treating you know, the poor in the townships almost as badly as the apartheid government had treated them, and there were riots against the government. And I said to this guy from the ANC, I said, look, what's going on here? Why are you doing this? Um, and his answer to me was very honest, I thought. He said, look, we don't think we've got any choice. He said, we live in a unipolar world. We live in a world in which finance capital and corporations run the show. He said, if we try to put in place, for example, our program of radical land reform that we'd wanted to, to, to put in place, taking land from, from the rich whites and giving it back to the blacks that they disenfranchised, then we would have been destroyed by the markets and, and the World Bank and the IMF within a week. And, and so we couldn't afford to do it. We just had to take the crumbs from the table. And I think that this is the story around the world. Political parties of, that used to be of the left, that used to present a challenge to capital and capitalism, and the consumer machine have effectively given up because they can't think of how to do it. They don't know what to do. So what they're trying to do in most cases is make the best of a bad job, which I think sums up Barack Obama quite well, and it sums up our, our Labour Party as well. And so I think you're right that any kind of faith in any political party, like the Democrats or the Labour Party here or, or anyone else that's going to try and operate in a, in a systemic environment like the United States or pretty much any advanced country today, you're going to be disappointed because they cannot give you what, what you want to do, what, what, what you want to get from them. And maybe they want to and maybe they don't want to, but it doesn't matter how good their intentions are almost because they don't have the power to do it. The system is much, much bigger than they're ever going to be. Then let's go, okay, then, uh, Paul, let's go to the next part of that. If the entire dilemma we are facing is a cultural challenge, the culture of Western civilization that we have bought into then what are you proposing is a more sustainable and nature-support alternative culture within the Western Hemisphere? Well, it's a very, very difficult one, this. I mean, one of the hardest things that I had to admit to myself when I was kind of working out the ideas that eventually led to Dark Mountain was that none of the kind of solutions that I previously believed in as an environmentalist and as a radical were actually going to work. Um, and I, you know, I, I used to believe that if you could get a radical political party into power, then you could change things. I don't believe that anymore. I used to believe maybe there could even be a revolution. Uh, I don't believe that anymore, certainly not in our current 
um, kind of situation. I think people are just, in the West anyway, far too rich and content in many ways to be uh, be revolutionary. Um, I used to think that, you know, if you did enough marching and lobbying and all the rest of it, you could change things in a systemic way. And I don't really believe that anymore. I really don't think at the moment that as citizens we are able to change the system in a, in a significant systemic way. I think, there are, I think that the system is eventually, possibly sooner rather than later, going to change itself because it's going to crash into the buffers. And we talked about that at, at some length. We've seen what the strains are. I don't think that the current system that we're living under this kind of political oligarchy and this increasingly corrupt um, capitalist enterprise system is going to last. Because if you look at, if you compare the, the sort of the signs now to the signs before the crash of any previous civilization, you can see similar kinds of things. You can see uh, responsive political systems jamming up and turning into oligarchies. You can see uh, uh, economic power being aggregated in a few people's hands. You can see uh, this kind of uh, false media uh, situation in which we're told all sorts of things are working that aren't and you can also see widespread disillusionment amongst people with the existing political process which you can see i mean in the states with the, with everything from the tea party movement to the sort of disillusioned democrats i suppose and you can certainly see it over here where people have almost stopped voting they're so sick of the political system i don't think we're at a stage in history where we can get together as people and, and try and change the system i think we have to wait for it to fall apart and then build something on, on the remnants, but I think that what we can do at the moment is uh, start to talk about and to challenge the mythologies that underlie that system that we've been talking about already. And I think that also in our personal lives and in our lives as individuals and as members of communities, we can start to live in a way that we think um, is uh, a decent way and a sustainable way of living on the earth. And that's inevitably going to involve um, you know, consuming a lot less stuff, growing your own food, trying to downsize, um, trying to get off grid if possible, trying to sort of cut yourself out of the most poisonous aspects of, of, of the kind of treadmill that we're on. Because what the system needs us to do, if you like, is to keep shopping and to stop thinking. Really, we need, we need to keep consuming. And this is what we hear all the time. I mean, I remember George W. Bush after 9-11 saying that the most important thing that Americans could do was to go shopping. Um, which I thought was astonishing. But, you know, you hear similar stuff all over the world in consumer democracies. What we really have to do is just keep the economy up by buying and buying and buying. So, you know, you can perform radical acts in your own life by just stepping off that treadmill and, and, and making your own things and living within your community and doing all sorts of things that not so long ago everybody did uh, as, as perfectly normal. You know, the stuff that my parents or certainly my grandparents used to do in the way that they lived is the kind of stuff that we're going to have to go back to doing. And it's going to be a painful adjustment for a lot of kind of wealthy people in countries like this, but we're going to have to deal with it. And I think the sooner rather than the, the, the better. And I think we need to prepare our ideas. I think we need to start living differently. And beyond that, we have to sort of wait for things to fall apart so that we can start picking up the pieces. Paul, I'm, uh, I am very pragmatic about what I see, and I believe you are as well. I'm sure in the UK, uh, as here in the United States, we see the uncertainty, we feel the fear and the confusion that the economy is headed towards a, a collapse, though we're told green shoots, you know, U-curve, it's, you know, bouncing back. And yet the underlying foundation for much of American society is that the only reason that they had a booming economy was because they were all living in a bubble. And now there's a lot of people excluded from that and can't, even if they wanted to. 
And we also realize that politics and economic uh, group that is ruled by an oligarchical elite uh, is alienating the people. But they're the ones who are going to hold on to power at all costs, and they are absolutely ruthless. Unlike many people in this audience, I took the time to study Barack Obama's background carefully. Everything he ever voted for, where he got his money, when he did what for what. And this man is no different than Bill Clinton. Uh, he may talk about being for the people. He's never been for the people. His little tiny stint as a community organizer aside, that was years ago. What he has done since has done everything that you would expect a ruling elite person to do, but he does it with a smile and a nice personality and, and, and engaging. But that's going to wear itself in because he's not helping improve the environment. He, he and British Petroleum are covering up the real crisis about multiple fractures in the Gulf, and if that comes to be that we can prove that in the near future, that is going to have a sobering impact. But then again, we have all these people, 300,000 jobs in the Gulf, and they want British Petroleum and other drillers to keep drilling. And at the very same time, you're saying, but hold on a second. You want your job. You want, whether it's crayfish or crabs or uh, tour boats, you want that to be back where it was. But you realize that you are also part of a country. You don't own the Gulf. It's not yours, Louisiana, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, or Texas. You don't own that Gulf. We all are part of this world, and that Gulf is a part of us. So if the Gulf is polluted, if there's 24,000 abandoned wells, which there are, and British Petroleum controls 600 of them, what the heck's going to happen when that uh, when another well goes? So we're not even able as a society to see the impact of our own selfish pursuit upon the larger civilization. So these are the issues that I'm dealing with, but I'm also looking at smaller groups of people working together to live a more sustainable life and sharing what they need, teaching each other, and I believe that this will be very important as a movement, especially among the younger people, among the more um, among the more idealistic people, among the more people who see the earth as complete to us and not separate. And I'm, I'm seeing the people interested everywhere I go. They're interested in this. They just need models of that to happen. So let's go over now and say hello to one of our callers, Ed from New York. Hi, Ed. You're on with my guest, yes. Paul Kingsnorth. Yes, hi. Uh, just a question, and I'll listen offline. Is Haiti a possible blank canvas for civilization? No. No. <laughs> Simple no. Now, I uh, thank you, Paul. Uh, Ed, uh, let's go back to Paul. Paul, could you address this idea that we're going to have some bad times ahead? Where do you see the bad times happening? Where do you see the, the implosion occurring? And in what time frame could you guesstimate that to be? Well, it's very difficult to say, of course. Um, I think that there's a couple of... Um there's a couple of ways that we feel comfortable in this society thinking about the future. Um, and one of them is that the future is going to be pretty much an upgraded version of the present. Everything's going to keep getting better. It'll be more or less the same as now, but we'll have better machines and we'll be healthier. And this will ex sort of extend itself to the rest of the world. That's the vision we feel comfortable with. And a vision that we feel equally comfortable with, curiously, is the kind of apocalyptic vision that we see in the movies all the time. Um, you know, the day after tomorrow or... or Independence Day or any of these other films in which a giant catastrophe occurs and we go from being perfectly comfortable one day to living in a kind of hellish Cormac McCarthy sort of post-apocalyptic landscape the next day. And, and there's, a, there's a huge space in between those things, and I think that space is where we're likely to be headed. I don't think that we're going to have a, a sort of rapid apocalyptic scenario. 
uh, of the kind of horror that you, you've seen in Haiti. I mean, Haiti's a very specific situation. It was a very poor and corrupt country before it had the earthquake, and, and it's, you know, it's, it's got all sorts of horrible problems afterwards. So that's not something that's going to be happening in a country like the U.S. But, but you know, what you're more likely to have is a, is a a fairly long gradual decline which as far as i'm concerned has already begun in our economics and in our in our in our lifestyles i mean if you if you look at the 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 level of people's lifestyles today compared to say the generation of my parents i think that we're worse off already i think that we're poorer we're in more debt we're more anxious we have to work harder our environment is more degraded um you know we we can't afford to buy a house all sorts of apparently small things actually mean that we're already on the downward slope so i think what we're likely to look at is um, you know, a fairly steady and, and appreciable, but maybe not catastrophic, decline in our lifestyles. Now, of course, there are all sorts of wild cards out there. Climate change, we don't know what will happen with climate change. It could be a gradual process. It could be something that happens very rapidly and throws all of this in the air. So there's all sorts of possible sort of mini-catastrophes that could happen. But I would see this some, as, as something that's going to span out over the whole of this century, and I think every decade is going to be um, appreciably worse than the one before, and by the end of this century, um, the, 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 the lifestyles and the living standards materially and in other ways of, of people in countries like the U.S. and the U.K. are going to be, um, I think, almost unrecognizable from the uh, sort of high-end consumer lifestyles that we live now. Paul, we're out of time. Thank you very much for the good work you're doing. The website is uh, dark-mountain.net and paulkingsnorth.net. Paul, we look forward to another conversation with you. Great. Thank you, Gary. 